0: about women you know who are healthy and active well into their 80s and 90s. What do most of them have in common? Well, for one thing, not only are they doing interesting things, they're doing new things. Their lives have many chapters, and each chapter could not exist without the one before it. A close friend of mine just celebrated her 80th birthday and launched a new career as a podcast host and political commentator. Last year, I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Ruth Westheimer, almost 95, and just released a new book. Today, my guest is actor and author, Katherine Lee Scott, and I promise you, her story is one you will want to hear. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized women's health expert. If women are given good information, they'll make good choices, and I'm here to give you the inside information. I spend a lot of time talking about hormone health, cardiovascular health, and other medical factors that impact on longevity, genetics, lifestyle, diet, and good luck. They all play a role. But there's another thing, which is just as important when it comes to healthy aging. In a 2022 study, scientists identified one other factor that describes the one in three women who are most likely to live to age 95 or above. It's not money. It's not love. It's not even having lots of sex. It's Optimism is having purpose. It's being productive. Which brings me to my guest today. Katherine Lee Scott is an author, producer, publisher, and actor. This is the actor who is the leading lady of NBC's Dark Shadows, the Gothic vampire drama that is now a cult classic. And today, we are going to have a conversation about how each chapter of her life has led to the next chapter and taken her down roads she never imagined. So. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you, Lauren. What a lovely introduction. Thank you. There's so much I want to talk about. But before we dive into your life story, I just want to mention an article that you recently published called I'm Turning 80 and Couldn't Be Happier with That Number in My
1: Life. So could you just talk about that article, why you wrote it and what the message was? I wrote it because I was turning 80. I find it so funny when people say 80 is the new something or other. 80 is 80. And I have so many friends, uh, women friends, who are turning 80 and are doing all kinds of exciting things. I don't think I'll ever retire from being an actor and a writer. Those aren't professions that I think you retire from. So I'm still doing all of that. and And there are all kinds of other new things in my life. So I just wanted to write about being 80 with a kind of optimism if you've got health on your side and uh you've got that optimistic attitude there's really not much that you can't do and my friend who worked in the district attorney's office in Los Angeles, she was an attorney before that. She was a newsreader. She's now on, I don't know, must be chapter 16 of her life. Yeah. Uh, she's now a really wonderful photographer and and doing uh, doing really wonderful photography that's being shown in galleries. And she's 81. Those are the kinds of stories, well, they support your, your contention about
0: uh, optimism. One of the things I found when I was learning about you and reading about you is, oh, my God, I could interview you for hours and you could write 20 books about your life because there've been so many interesting chapters. But what I'd like to do is focus on three big chapters in your life, understanding that none of those chapters have really ever ended, you know, that they always overlap and continue to feed into the next part of your life. So we're going to divide this into chapter one is going to be the bunny years. Chapter two is going to be the acting years. And then chapter three will be the. Author years. So let's start with chapter one, the bunny years. Let me just set the stage. You're 19 years old. You've just landed in New York to study acting, and you need to pay the rent and buy food. So tell the story. How did you end up as a Playboy bunny? And how did it help you become the woman you are today?
1: Well, I was a farm girl from Robbinsdale, Minnesota, and as you say, I arrived in New York. I wanted to be an actress, but i I needed a bread and butter job. I had to pay you know rent and and food and so on and even though I had a scholarship at the Academy, I needed a job and I saw an ad in the New York Times that said, "Girls step into the spotlight, be a playboy bunny and I think I joined maybe I don't know hundreds and hundreds of girls uh, racing down to um the audition. And you had to bring a bathing suit. And they had a little personality test. It was like a mini Miss America thing. Mm-hmm. And I got I got hired. I got hired by Keith Hefner. Um, I was a little bit underage. You had to be a certain age to work nights in, in um, New York. And I was a student at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. I had classes. And I was walking out with, uh, with another girl named... Uh, Mary Mary Hutton who turned out to be Lauren Hutton she wanted to be an actor she was also studying and uh and Keith hired both of us he he created jobs for the two of us again if you know it's one of those if opportunity knocks for god's sake answer the door we were we were both given these uh jobs that uh, I I was a cigarette bunny back in the days when you walked around with a, a tray of cigarettes and cigars and, and so on. I used to race over there uh, after my classes were over, zip on that bunny costume, and I had the run of the place, all seven floors. It was as long as they they had the cigarette bunny job open, that was me. Then I started working tables, but. Oh, the really fun thing about a month after I was hired, I they put me in bunny training for working on the tables. And I was in bunny training with Gloria Steinem. I have no idea that Gloria, there were only seven of us in the bunny training class. And I sat next to her and we had dinner together and, and many conversations. We had the same training bunny on the floor. I had no idea that she was there fulfilling her agenda as a journalist. Right. Uh, writing a two-part expose right, her her Undercover, the- Show <laughs> Magazine. I mean, she bought her place in the sun with that uh, with that two-part article. Yeah, um, I'm going to get back to that in a minute because I think
0: before we talk about yeah. what Gloria Steinem did and how she portrayed the bunnies, I think it's really important to to learn about what life was really like as a bunny in terms of how it empowered you. And how it gave you the ability to really take charge of your life, correct? I mean, thank it, you. I mean, it gave you financial yeah, little, security, <laughs> thank right? Thank you, you for
1: taking back to that because it's so important. Uh, uh, there was a, obviously a huge cultural shock coming from a you know farm town in the Midwest and ending up in New York. And I've always said that the uh, Playboy Bunny dressing room. Circa 1964 was probably more diverse than you'd find on any college campus even 20 years later. There, mm-hmm. were, there were women who were uh, literally from all over the world. There, there, was, a, there was one uh, German bunny who had fled the Berlin Wall. There were girls there who were heiresses. There were girls that grew up in the projects in Bronx and and Newark, New Jersey, and and we were all all 110 of us who were working at the New York Playboy Club. Uh, we were just all thrown together. It was it was a marvelous experience. If you were to ask me what the best part of working at the Playboy Club was. It was getting to know these women many of whom are still are still close friends it was the idea that uh, being a playboy bunny was obviously considered provocative risque whatever but women attracted to that job i think we all felt that we were kind of uh, it was a walk on the wild side in a very safe way. Yeah. We were so protected there. Yeah,
0: something uh, that we can't emphasize well. enough, because one of the misconceptions about being a Playboy bunny, which Gloria Steinem didn't help with, is that there was that there's this idea that oh, that there's an expectation that sexual
1: favors were part of the job, but in reality, it was quite the opposite. Yeah. A lot of the women that I, that I was in school with um, who were working in as sales girls or as uh, Girl Fridays or, or uh, temp secretaries and, and so on were working in environments that were no, nowhere near as safe or protected as I was at the Playboy Club. The idea, of obviously, of management was that we've got young girls walking around half naked serving highballs, and <laughs> they're, they're 19, 20 years old. Uh, so there were very strict rules that we appreciated. If a customer asked me out on a date, I, first of all, it was against the rules, but more than that, it was a great excuse to not do something you didn't want to do. We were really protected. One of the rules, you, can, you couldn't touch a bunny. You know, she had no last name. She had no phone number. There was no way of seeing her outside the club. All of that put us in a, a very safe position.
0: You know, I mean, from just even the brief description you've given, and, and I do want to mention that, of course, all of this is documented in your wonderful book, The Bunny Years, and I will put that link in the program notes. But really, the thing that struck me as I was reading the book is that the bunnies were the first feminists. They really took control of their surroundings, of their financial security, most of them use the money to finance their education you probably didn't
1: use the word feminist at the time but when you think oh as a matter of fact back in 1964 uh, it was called Women's Lib. We were in the yeah. vanguard of Women's Lib, which was all about equal pay and equal opportunity in the workplace. Definitely earning more than my brother. I was uh, earning more than uh, any boyfriend I was seeing at that time. Uh, we were earning more than the junior managers at the Playboy Club, the the, the fellows that were the room directors. Yeah. And, and the girls very quickly realized, you know, that we were running the show. There were separate clubs all over New York. You came to the Playboy Club because because of the bunnies, so we realized our, our power straight Alice. off. I'm 80 years old, so when I talk about 1964 and what it was like to be, uh, you know, a young woman then, um, we you could not get a credit card in your own name without having your father or some responsible male sign for you. Bunnies very quickly learned, and we learned this, you know, in the bunny dressing room uh, from the older gals uh you just went to the most expensive department store and in, in this case we walked across the street to Bergdorf Goodman or down the street to Tiffany you ordered stationery and because it took a while for the stationery to be get made automatically established credit with Tiffany's and you took that uh, that Tiffany's credit and you went to Bergdorf Goodman um the more expensive stores would give you credit yeah. And that's how we started getting our our credit cards. Yeah. After that you could go to Bloomingdale's or Macy's and and get a credit card. The other thing is uh, getting a mortgage a young woman 1920 uh, 21 years old uh, trying to uh, get a mortgage it was impossible. So you found a lot of the the women saving up their money and paying cash for a condo in addition
0: to having a nice place where than getting you know nice clothes and all that people were able to pay for college and one of yes. the things i loved about the book is that you really you know you interviewed the bunnies the majority of them it appears the bunny years were just like you The first chapter in very interesting lives, CEOs, successful entrepreneurs, doctors, lawyers. It's really quite Mm -hmm. extraordinary. I I think I mentioned to you earlier before we started recording that I worked my way through college and medical school as a waitress in in a very busy Chicago restaurant. And today I'm still friends with those waitresses who Like your friends from the bunny years are women who are incredibly successful because we took ownership, we took control, and we said we are going to make things happen. The other thing that's interesting is that when we talk about Hugh Hefner, you know, in addition to being a champion for civil rights and reproductive rights and being anti-racist, you mentioned the diversity in of the bunnies. And that was very unusual there to have Asian bunnies and black bunnies in, in New York circa those years. And he made that happen. But I mean, really, he was a feminist. Would you agree with that?
1: I would agree with it. And uh, and as far as the <clears throat> the civil rights aspect of it, uh, the first club, of course, was the Chicago club. Second was Miami and New Orleans. And, mm-hmm. and then, of course, New York. The, the New Orleans and Miami clubs were franchise clubs. And because of rules about, you know, segregation, a, a lot of the talent was treated differently. And, and Heff wanted, uh, he wanted everybody to have access to a Playboy key and he wanted his entertainers treated equally. Uh, and he bought those franchises back. And that was at a time when that sort of thing was was really, not that was unheard of. So, uh, and also his attitude toward women. I didn't know him when I was working as a Playboy Bunny, but when I started writing The Bunny Years, and I spent more time talking to him and, and so on, I, I can't tell you uh, how respectful he was. He ended up allowing me to use his library, his personal library, Um, which was a terrific boon for the, for the book and, and for fact checking. Yeah, so many of the people who worked at the, uh, at the mansion, but certainly at the magazine, uh, were women. He gave wonderful opportunities to, uh, women in, in executive positions. Well, and even though I didn't know him back in the, uh, you know, the, the days when I was a, a bunny, I, ne- I never crossed paths with him in the New York club. It was, uh, his philosophy and, and his, um, his way, his management really it, it permeated the, 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 the whole enterprise. And if you were to, again to ask me what the most important thing was that I learned there, it was how to conduct myself in an adult environment. That's something that all young men and women need to learn. And we learned it under probably the best sorts of circumstances. Yeah.
0: So to circle back to the whole Gloria Steinem thing, a lot of the misconceptions about life as a playboy bunny are a direct result of of Gloria Steinem's article. And, you know, this expose was not flattering. She portrayed the bunnies as being victimized and exploited, which I think you've now made very clear that it was exactly the opposite. So you worked with her. Why did she get it so wrong? Did she write the piece before she started working or why was her version of what was going on so different than... Than the reality.
1: First of all, there's such a lot to admire about Gloria Steinem. She's done such a lot. So we're going back now to the very beginning. She was seven or eight years older. She had already graduated from university. She'd traveled. She was she was working. In other words, uh, she'd been assigned to write this piece, and she was fulfilling that agenda. So I don't think that she really paid attention to the young women that she was working with in the time that the two of us had had dinner together and and talked at length. And she knew why I was there. She knew I was a scholarship student. She knew my ambitions and aspirations. And and she knew that about so many of the other uh, young women that she was was working with. We were much younger than she was and every bit as ambitious as she was. But I don't think she recognized that. And when her article appeared, I remember being in the bunny dressing room, looking at the, the first installment and we were, we were appalled and very hurt because well, it was a betrayal. It was a betrayal of you. <laughs> <She and> you <laughs> a huge betrayal. I mean, she worked among us. It had a lasting impact on how people felt about what we were doing. Yeah, uh, there it was no. Day, I mean, when you look even uh, now, even now, six years yeah. later, if yeah. when I'm talking about it, you know, it is still the gospel of the way things were, and that's and and I'm here to tell you that that was not. I was there at exactly the same time, working the same shifts with the same people, and and had a totally totally different experience. Well, but it
0: wasn't just you; it was when you read your book and you interview many, 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 many bunnies and all of them talk about the fact that this was a life changing experience in a positive way and enabled it them was. to go on and do many other things. So, you know, it would be interesting to know if she's ever regretted that or, you know, kind of looked back and said, Hmm, maybe I wasn't fair.
1: And no, I don't think, one she's, article I, I know. Know. I think she's, um, uh, Lauren, I think that she is so invested in it, and and she would not she would not under any circumstance uh, say that. I actually ran into her a couple of months ago at an event. We had our photograph taken together, sort of arms around each other. You know, I didn't I I didn't bring it up. I didn't mention it at all. So
0: she uh, it was a He like, didn't recognize or know you as a former bunny. You had your arms around each other.
1: She may have recognized her. me, but we didn't talk about it. it. And the point is, I have really strong feelings about it. I would not have in the book without with that fire in my belly you know the, I, I interviewed almost 300 women uh who worked at all of the different clubs 25 of them over that 25 year uh, history uh, the clubs essentially closed in 1985 they started in 1960 yeah. and i i uh, the just the trajectory of of, uh, women's lib moving into, uh, you know, real feminism during that 25-year period. I talked to women who were, um, you know, maybe 15, 20 years younger than me, but we all still had that feeling about what Playboy, what working as a Playboy bunny had uh, done as far as Making us who we were and and giving us that sort of launching pad that um, uh, that was really um, so important in my life, but also never in my you know never happened. would have happened.
0: so which which brings me to, to chapter two the the acting years um, <laughs> because that's when you left. Uh, Playboy. That's when you left your bunny job, correct? You you, you graduated uh, from the American Academy. Yeah. The other
1: nice thing about you know the other nice thing about working at uh, at Playboy is that we had flexible hours. It was so easy to get somebody else to you know take your shift, and all of the women working at, at Playboy then were they were going to college, they were launching careers. So Lauren, of course, launched herself as a, a model just a year after being a bunny. Um, and uh, and so um I was auditioning the whole time that I was working as a Playboy bunny. And, and then I got the job on Dark Shadows. Yeah. And I called my mother back in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. And, and I told her I, I got this job in a new soap opera. And she said, it's new though, I haven't heard of it. I wouldn't give up the bunny job until you, you know that, that it's going to stay on the air. And I, I continued working as a Playboy bunny for another, I think, two months. Until one Saturday night, I had a, a table of four. And the and the two women looked at me and said, aren't you Maggie Evans on Dark Shadows? What are you doing working as a Playboy bunny? And that was the Saturday night that I turned in my ears. And, and that was the end of it. Don't you wish you'd kept them, your ears? I, no, I kept the ears. I wish I'd kept the costume. It. Uh, but but it let's was, let's uh, talk about Dark Shadows. Because, yeah. it,
0: you know, when you talk about graduating from... Uh, drama, you know, the Academy of Dramatic Arts and getting a job. It wasn't like you got, you know, a little nothing job, you <laughs> got a huge job that turned into a starring role for years. And obviously you're a talented actor, but was it luck? Was it, do you think that the Playboy connection in any way was impress them
1: in terms of, of
0: who you were? No. In your
1: Yeah. The interesting thing and and all of the women that I I spoke with uh when I was doing the book we all had the same feeling because largely because of Gloria's article and and the stigma kind of attached to being a Playboy bunny nobody when I went out at an audition nobody at my school nobody nobody knew that I was working as a Playboy yeah. bunny so it had absolutely uh no impact on my career whatsoever yeah. but I did audition for Dark Shadows over a period of time and at the same time, it was doing, uh, you know, I was doing, I left to do summer stock, I did some stuff off Broadway, but when I got Dark Shadows, that was a, a, a real commitment, because it was five days a week, um, it was a live show, we, we um, it was back in the days of black and white live TV. Uh, well, so was, you, you know, a we did at eight o'clock in the morning, and then four o'clock in the afternoon, we had a finished show, and it went out live with the commercials.
0: That's just astonishing. But was there <laughs> a live audience as well?
1: Uh, no, there was no uh, there was no live audience. We had our own little studio in, in Hell's Kitchen uh, in New York way over on the west side. But it was, again, an extraordinary experience because I was working with a a Hollywood legend, uh, Joan Bennett, an Academy Award nominee, Grayson Hall, Uh, you know, wonderful veteran actors who were primarily stage actors. Most of the young actors hired, uh, including myself, we were stage trained. And, uh, we worked together like a repertory company. I ended up playing four different roles on the show. In different I was, time, I time, the, time. I was the time. lead. I was the main squeeze of the, of the, uh, vampire, Barnabas Collins. Uh, I time traveled. I played a wonderful role in the, uh, 1700s, uh, in Josette Dupre. And then Lady Kitty Hampshire in the 1800s, Rachel Drummond, a, a young governess in um, the 1800s. Uh, and then Maggie Evans, a waitress in a diner. <laughs> and I walked so right into that. that. I have to tell you, when uh, when my first day on the set as Maggie Evans in that diner, um, I was, I, every, every bit of what I knew about being a Playboy Bunny <laughs> went into it. See it all, it all fell. absolutely. But it was just a, it was a fabulous opportunity. And then our creator Dan Curtis uh, really wanted to do feature film, and and then uh, our third year he started um, he started to raise the money to do a feature. So I ended up starring in House of Dark Shadows, based on on Dark Shadows, uh, with Jonathan Fred. And it, we did the film for MGM. It it was a box office success. It made so much money that it saved MGM from bankruptcy that year. Yeah. And I was I was launched as a, uh, an actress with my um, with my first feature film. Well, and then went on
0: to do to do many more. And yeah, I, one of the things I, I thought, well, you know, there's no way I could possibly list. Everything you've appeared on, you know, when you look at not only your theater appearances, but your TV appearances and your, and your serial appearances and, you know, multiple, multiple movies. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and continues. It's not like you've stopped acting. You're continuing.
1: No, I'm doing a film. I'm, I'm actually doing a film now and I'm also working on a, I'm rehearsing for a play that my friend Susan Sullivan, who was a bunny with me at the Playboy Club, and I know you know her from Falcon Crest and Darman Gregg and Castle, uh, but she's my oldest friend. She's uh, written a play that we're doing uh and uh david selby who is with me in dark shadows is going to be in it um so no uh, and susan by the way is also uh 80 just a little bit older than me um and uh, again you know uh <laughs> none of us have ever stopped and i see no reason to no
0: of course not and i i did see something about potentially rebooting dark
1: shadows is that a rumor or yeah, is that a possibility I, we, you know, we we're currently uh, in a writer's strike, so everything is ground to a halt. But uh, yes, there's a wonderful writer, Mark B. Perry, who's written a new version of Dark Shadows, and uh, and it's my hope that I will be part of it when it's rebooted, which would be wonderful. Imagine coming full circle, what ties you know, my career up in a pink ribbon. I'm sure you saw Rita Moreno in, in West Side
0: Story in the movie and yeah. playing a role different than what she had originally played. And I just love that. It was perfect to talk yes. about full circle. So chapter three. Yes. <laughs> the writer. The writer. It's just astonishing to me, the volume of work that you have produced. Not just fiction books and nonfiction books, but of course, writing for newsletters like the ARP, which is, by the way, how we, how we met because I I know (laughs) I write for the Ethel as well. And I'm going to get to some of the articles that we kind of have on the same topic, but the writing thing is huge. So at what point in your life? Did you discover you were a writer? Because I know for me, before I went to medical school, I thought I was going to be a journalist and I was an English major and I always liked to write. And I thought that everybody could write. And I thought everyone liked to write. And it was a real revelation to me to learn much later in my life that, no, that's that's not the case. So... What, what was it like for you? When did you realize you were a writer?
1: Oh, I, I realized it in the second grade. I was so uh, my mother had an old uh, an old typewriter, an old upright and I would bang away on that uh, uh, even when I was seven, six, seven years old but when I was in second grade I wrote a play about George Washington. I gave all the good lines to Martha Washington of course. and then our, our class performed it for all of the second grade classes and I got my—I think my really my first taste of what that was like um, to make something and and to see it all the way through. Um, I uh, and I was in all of the school plays, uh, but I also wrote for the, the school newspaper and uh, And when I was sixteen, as you know, uh because you're in in Chicago, uh at Evanston, at Northwest University, they have a wonderful program for sixteen year olds. I applied for it. I'd won an award, a state award uh, for a piece that I had written about Carl Sandberg, also from chicago and um and that but I'd also won an award for acting, and I applied for both. Uh, for the Cherub program at Northwestern University. And I got the scholarship and the acceptance uh, as an actor.
0: Yeah,
1: And it kept happening that whenever I applied for uh, a scholarship or whatever, it always ended up being in the acting. Uh, but that never meant that I didn't want to be a writer. So even all of these years when I was... Um, when I was working as an actress, I was still writing. Uh, you I never still, stopped. I, yeah. I never stopped that. Uh, but what really turned uh, the tide uh, was when I, I wrote a book about Dark Shadows, and, and it happened to coincide with the twentieth anniversary of the of the show. The book was a big success, and it um, and I think that's what propelled me to you know to keep uh, to keep writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, now was that when the, the Dark Shadows returned to Collinwood? I read, yeah, that, that was one of them. It began with Dark uh, mm-hmm. Shadows Memories, oh. and that was the first one that I, I wrote. But I wrote mostly nonfiction. And then uh, when my husband, uh, Jeff Miller, who is the, the founding editor of Los Angeles magazine, oldest magazine in the country, um, it's like your Chicago magazine, um, uh, when he got ill, I uh, became his caregiver. And he had a rare neurological disease, a progressive supranuclear palsy, which is like ALS or corticobasal dis- you know all of those yeah that little family of, of um, prime of life diseases and, uh, and so I wrote a book on caregiving and, and then I ended up writing four books on on caregiving. Uh, and I again, you're, you know you you write about what you know, uh, and that was an arena that I was really familiar with. Uh, and then I started writing fiction. And I started writing fiction when Jeff was ill because I could I could sit next to him with my laptop. Yeah. And my first fiction book was was published just a month after he passed away. Uh, so I kind of brand, I found fiction a a big challenge. It's taken me a long time to get into it, but now I've written about five, Uh, five novels. It's funny that you should say that because the five books that I've written
0: are all health books, they're all nonfiction. And my my husband's a writer, he's a playwright, he's a screenwriter, and he's always saying to me, oh, we should write a a fiction book together. And I always, I can't write fiction. And I've actually started to dabble a little bit in my menopause books. um, I have a a character called Francie, and she's my fictional character that (laughs) represents menopausal women, and I have her going through all of these books with her vaginal dryness and her hot flashes and she loses her (laughs) job and and my next book about orgasm, poor Francie's not able to have an orgasm anymore. And I'm actually having a lot of fun writing that part of it. And it's challenging. Whereas It's a big, big change. It's a huge change. And for me, writing nonfiction, quite frankly, writing about medical stuff, I, I enjoy it. I don't find it that difficult but writing the fiction stuff is challenging, but it's also a lot more fun. Like if you you had a It's a
1: lot more fun, but but, but what really kicked me finally into being able to write fiction is to take so much of what I know as an actor uh, and and apply that. The the fact that I uh, obviously dialogue is one. As an actor, you're always conscious, very conscious of of playing all five senses and bringing that to the page also helped. But there are so many things that as a, that I do as an actor in, in creating a role that really helped me, kind of kick-started me into being able to write fiction. So, as you said, you, you write what you know, and your
0: last piece that you wrote for ARP, which was actually the piece that we kind of met on, if you will, because yeah. the editor asked me to take a look at it. It was a wonderful piece called In Praise of Morning Sex. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. Well okay, I'll just I'm gonna let you talk about it. In praise of morning sex, go
1: all right well uh well first of all um uh i have a boyfriend uh my husband died now it's already 11 years ago and uh and i met a terrific guy four years ago and uh and we just find that morning uh, now that i mean you know there are no children to get off to school you have to race off to work you know it's uh it's just a uh a lovely time for that kind of intimacy and, uh, and, and then I, I, I really wrote it in a kind of larky sort of way. But then I started finding reasons that supported why having morning sex was so delectable. Uh, there are just so many reasons why it's a very good time of the day, not that afternoon sex and evening sex and any other time of sex isn't perfectly fine. But, there are no, but when you think why. about it,
0: the whole premise of evening sex, you think, OK, where does that come from? Well, it comes from dating, going out to dinner drinking and then that's how you end the evening. So everybody gets in this mode of that's when you're supposed to have sex. And the truth of the matter is, is that most people, if they're tired or if they've had something too much to drink or they're feeling you know stuffed from dinner, it's not a great time. And the luxury of being at a point, as you say, where you don't have to jump out of bed and go to work or get the kids off to school, is the idea that you wake up and a lot of people do wake up feeling very sexy and very relaxed. And other than the brushing your teeth part, um, there's not a lot kind of downside or peeing, you know women, I mean, let's be honest. Most women they, yeah, you, so so I guess morning sex has to start off with you just get out of bed long enough to pee and brush your teeth and then get right back into that, you know, under the cozy covers and and go for it. But but seriously, when, when you think in terms of yourself as a sexual erotic woman, that may just be who you are and, and that's developed over life. Do you think circling back to your early years at Playboy that that helped you in terms of developing your own sense of sexuality and, um, and, and feeling confident in yourselves as a sexual person or oh. is it just
1: who you are? I was going to leap in there and say no, and then I realized that, of course, when you're 18, 19 years old, uh, uh, all girls wonder if they're pretty enough and they're they're sexy enough and all that sort of thing. Um, Getting a job working as a Playboy bunny and wearing that provocative costume and having uh, the self-confidence to walk into... A room where everybody is wearing business suits. and <laughs> You're dressed, you know, in this one-piece bathing suit sort of costume. Um, you know, you, uh, you, yeah. You develop a, a sense of yourself. It's not just a sense of yourself sexually, but it's uh, a, a sense of your your own power yeah. and uh, and also your uh, your. Um, mm, I can't find the word well, for it. It's really confidence. To it's to a confidence. You yourself.
0: Yeah, you project uh, yourself. And, and don't you, you know, it's so interesting because very often we, we know women who are not necessarily classically what we would think of as beautiful, but yet they're the ones that when they walk into a room, everybody yeah. takes notice. There's a sexuality. There's a sense of this woman thinks well of herself. This woman is confident. And really, I think that that's what makes someone a good sexual partner is to, of course, being able to communicate if there's a partner and all of that and being aware, but you have to be confident. You have to have a sense of yourself. And I think that comes from early experiences.
1: Yeah, confidence is sexy. There's no two ways about it. Yeah. We're attracted to people who have a sense of themselves, who are comfortable in their own skin, and and you, if you learn to project that, and and you really have a an inner sense of it, um, you're well on your way to being a very sexual person.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Sensual person, yeah.
0: Sensual, yeah. All right. <laughs> Retirement is not part of your vocabulary. I was going to ask you what's next up for you, but you've already told us a little bit about that. You're working on this theater piece, any, and you're writing for Ethel, uh, the the Arp newsletter. Of course, you'll continue to do that. What else? Yeah. What
1: else and it's the documentary uh, based on the Bunny Years book. It's 20 years ago now, and I realized that it was no longer available, I, and we're now in the process of reissuing that with a, a new beginning, a new end, but essentially it's the same piece. In looking at it, I realized that fully a third of the people in it, maybe more, including uh, Keith Hefner, Hugh Hefner, and fully a third of the women, uh, have passed away. and. They are the ones who can speak from firsthand knowledge of what it was like to be a Playboy bunny. There have been a couple of things about Playboy, uh, some documentaries that have been out, but but they're not with people who were actually there. They're talking about it uh, without firsthand knowledge. I would I'm really keen to get the Bunny Years back out there for a new audience. Uh, so I'm working on that, and uh, there's another documentary that I'm I'm also working on. And and I I find that's a really interesting area now to go into. Uh, people are really appreciating documentaries in the way they haven't in the past.
0: I am a huge fan of documentaries, and in fact, in Chicago, there's a series called Doc Ten, which just ended, and I saw ten documentaries in three days, including a wonderful one on on share height and the height report. Very excited about your work, what you're doing. Well, I've
1: got uh, my, my young friend, Maggie Contreras, uh, and we've written uh, two, actually two plays together. Maggie has a documentary called Mestra, which is about uh, women conductors, and it's having its premiere at Tribeca next week. And I, I hope to do, do some of the fundraising for that. And it's just a, a wonderful, inspiring documentary to be able to work now at this time of my life with younger people. She's in her 30s. Uh, the director of the film that I'm working on is 32. Uh, it, it, it really uh, This is a nice time of life where I realized what it was like for Joan Bennett when I was working with her. Wow. Uh, You know and i came in as a you know 19 year old kid um so so there there are so many opportunities that are opening up now that i'm i'm really excited about oh it is very exciting and and one of the many pieces of good advice that my mother
0: gave me was always have younger friends and work with younger people because hopefully you will live a very long time and you will wanna be around people who you like and you enjoy and who will inspire you to learn new things and to do new things. And you are certainly the epitome of that.
1: Well, thank you. You're so inspiring. And I'm also glad that you're continuing to write for The Ethel. I think that that newsletter is just terrific.
0: For listeners who aren't familiar with it, The Ethel, it's an ARP newsletter. It launched, what is it, about two, three years now? and And basically, the editor of The Ethel gathered up writers who were established writers who have experiences and expertise, and it's been an award-winning newsletter. I'll put the link in in the program notes. And in fact, the editor that we work with, Iris Krasnow, I did an early podcast with her about oh. the importance of of relationships and friends as as someone ages. And I'll put the, that link in the in the pro, in the program notes as well. But. That's, for me, what has been so wonderful about the experience of writing for the Ethel is I've met people like you <laughs> that otherwise our paths would not have crossed. Is there anything else in the couple minutes we have left that I didn't ask you about that you want to talk about that you want to
1: mention? I have just finished my I think it's my 11th piece for the Ethel. And uh, and I wrote about my sister who passed away two weeks ago mm-hmm. uh, and who has not had uh, the life that I've enjoyed. She's she's been special needs since she was born. And uh, and writing about her, again, all of this is cathartic. As soon as you put things on paper, you're finding out things you didn't realize you knew mm-hmm. about yourself. And I think that's the other inspiring thing about writing. You really get to know yourself. It's been um, uh, an amazing experience putting down my thoughts about my sister.
0: That's such an important point because when we think in terms of being writers, we think about getting our work published when in fact, writing is something that everyone should do and journaling. And there's a a wonderful author, I don't know if you know, Michelle Weldon, she wrote a book years ago called Writing to Save Your Life. And it was really about the power of journaling. And just by sitting down and, and putting things on paper, how you do learn about yourself. And it's one of the regrets I have personally, I try not to have regrets, but one of the regrets I have is that I did not journal. And I was always too busy. And the truth is it doesn't take that much time to spend five or 10 minutes a day writing down a few thoughts. And I'm so sorry now because I think it would have been useful to me. And I think also that would have been nice to be able to go back and look at things from years ago. So um, I guess it's not too late. Maybe I should start journaling now. You should. You I'm. Should. I'm sorry. I didn't do that before. It's, it's such an important skill.
1: It's just such a pleasure to get to know you, Lauren. I'm. I'm really enjoying my conversation with you. Well, we're going to do it again, but we'll do it maybe
0: when we're in the same city with a glass of wine. But this has been wonderful. So thank you for spending this time. And I. I will also admit that I've never watched Dark Shadows but now I'm going to. And oh, no.
1: Wait and, for the new one to come out. <laughs> well,
0: but what's funny is, is last night I was having dinner with my sister-in-law who's younger than I am. And I, and I mentioned that I was interviewing you and I said, well, you've probably never heard of this woman because you were too young to have Watch Dark Shadows. And she said, are you kidding? She said, I know exactly who that is. And of course, <laughs> I watch Dark Shadows. That sometimes we underestimate the impact that, that our life work has uh, oh, on generations to come. Thank so, you
1: for telling me that.
0: <laughs> so now, yes, I am going to go back and watch. And then I'll appreciate the reboot that much more. But it won't be the same. So thank you. Thank you. And um, yeah. I look forward to our next conversation. Lovely. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my inside information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of.
1: I feel blue She helped me see the light